The House and Senate are now in recess for the 4th of July break and will not return until Monday, July 10. Last week in the House, the House came back last Tuesday and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House voted for the rule to govern floor consideration of H.R. 3564, the Middle Class Borrower Protection Act, H.R. 3799, the Choice Arrangement Act, and H. Res. 461, condemning the use of elementary and secondary school facilities to provide shelter for aliens who are not admitted to the United States. Then the House took up and rejected a motion to table H. Res. 521, a resolution censuring Representative Adam Schiff. Then the House tried to override the President's veto of H.J. Res. 45. That's the Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval regarding the President's student loan debt bailout scam. The veto override attempt failed. Then the House took up H.R. 3799, the Choice Arrangement Act. Choice, in this case, is actually an acronym. It stands for Custom Health Option and Individual Care Expense. The Choice Arrangement Act would codify a 2019 Trump administration rule to allow employers to provide tax-advantaged funds to their employees to purchase qualified medical expenses. After considering three amendments, two of which were adopted, the House voted by 220 to 209 to pass the bill. Then the House took up H. Res. 521, censuring Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, and passed the resolution by a vote of 213 to 209, with the six Republican members of the House Ethics Committee voting present. On Thursday, the House took up H. Res. 529, a rule that would refer H. Res. 503, Representative Lauren Boebert's resolution impeaching President Biden for his failure properly to secure the southern border, to the Committee on Homeland Security and the Committee on the Judiciary. It passed by a vote of 219 to 208. Then the House took up and passed H. Res. 461, condemning the use of elementary and secondary school facilities to provide shelter for aliens who are not admitted to the United States. On Friday, the House took up H.R. 3564, the Middle Class Borrowers Protection Act. That's a bill that would eliminate the Biden administration's new tax on creditworthy homebuyers to subsidize those with riskier loans. After rejecting one amendment, the House passed the measure by a vote of 230 to 189, with 14 Democrats crossing party lines to vote with the Republicans and no Republicans crossing party lines to vote with the Democrats. And then they were done. Last week in the Senate, the Senate came back to work on Tuesday and voted to confirm the nomination of Julie Reichelman to be U.S. Circuit Judge for the First Circuit Court of Appeals. On Wednesday, the Senate failed to override a presidential veto of the Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Environmental Protection Agency relating to control of air pollution from new motor vehicles, heavy-duty engine and vehicle standards. The veto was sustained by a vote of 50 to 50. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Natasha C. Murrell to be U.S. District Judge for the Eastern District of New York. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the treaty document 112-8, the tax convention with Chile. 
On Thursday, the Senate voted to reject H.R.E.S. 44, a CRA resolution of disapproval of the rules submitted by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives relating to factoring criteria for firearms with attached stabilizing braces. The resolution was rejected by a vote of 49 to 50. Then the Senate voted to ratify Treaty Document 112-8, the Tax Convention with Chile. And then they were done. Now let's talk about the funding fight to come. On Thursday of last week, the Senate Appropriations Committee advanced its fiscal year 2024 spending plan. In doing so, it set up a fight with the House Appropriations Committee that could lead to a temporary partial government shutdown later this year. The Democrats who run the Senate and therefore run all the committees set the overall spending levels for FY 2024 discretionary spending at $1.59 trillion. That's the level that was agreed to in the debt ceiling deal struck by President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy. The House Appropriations Committee, by contrast, set spending levels for FY 2024 a week earlier. When they did so, they chose to go lower than the $1.59 trillion number agreed to by Biden and McCarthy. Said House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Kay Granger, quote, while the Fiscal Responsibility Act set the top-line spending levels, it does not require that we mark up our bills to that level. Simply put, the debt ceiling bill set a ceiling, not a floor, for fiscal year 2024 bills. The allocations before us reflect the change members on my side of the aisle want to see by returning spending to responsible levels. They also fulfill our commitment to focus our limited resources on the core responsibilities of the federal government, end quote. House Republican leaders agreed to the lower spending levels under pressure from conservatives in the House Freedom Caucus. So the stage is now set. The House Republican leadership is determined to pass 12 individual spending bills, one at a time, with lower levels than agreed to in the debt ceiling deal. The Senate isn't in any rush to pass individual spending bills. The Senate likes to fund government by means of a giant omnibus bill at the end of the year because it's much easier to hide ridiculous spending programs in a 3,000-page bill. So it's an open question at this point whether the Senate will even attempt to pass a single spending bill, let alone all 12. If the two sides do not agree on individual spending bills and still haven't agreed on spending levels by January 1, then under the terms of the debt ceiling deal and the Fiscal Responsibility Act, a continuing resolution with funding levels set at 1% less than last year's funding levels will go into effect. So both sides have an incentive to move toward a negotiated resolution. More on that Chinese spy base in Cuba. When last we spoke, we discussed the revelation that for the last several years, China has been running a surveillance operation directed at the southeastern United States from a base in Cuba. On Tuesday, June 20th, the Wall Street Journal updated its reporting by revealing that not only is China surveilling communications in the southeastern U.S. from Cuba, it's currently negotiating with Cuba to establish a joint military training facility on the island. That could result in China stationing thousands of troops less than 100 miles from U.S. territory. The journal says U.S. intelligence reports indicate that the talks are in an advanced stage but have not yet concluded. China and Cuba already jointly manage four separate electronic eavesdropping stations on the island, 
That network was upgraded, was upgraded from the one original site in 2019 to four different sites. More on the Durham report. On Tuesday, June 20, Special Counsel John Durham sat for several hours of testimony in a closed session with the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Then, the next day, he sat in front of the House Judiciary Committee for a public session. These two sessions with House committees represent the first time he has testified since he released his report last month. Republican and Democrat leaders of the House Intelligence Committee agreed that Durham's testimony bolstered the case for significant reform of the FBI and for tougher oversight of the FBI by the Congress. They looked to the upcoming reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act as a prime opportunity to make changes. The hearings before the Judiciary Committee on Wednesday was a different matter entirely. The only sense of bipartisanship was the fact that partisans on both sides reveled in attacking Durham. Democrat Adam Schiff of California, who had led the Democrats' attempt to impeach and remove President Donald Trump, attacked Durham for allegedly carrying water for Trump, while Trump allies on the committee attacked Durham for allegedly carrying water for the FBI establishment. More on the Trump federal indictment. On Tuesday of last week, Judge Eileen Cannon, who is overseeing the federal case against Donald Trump, set a trial date for August 14. That was seen as an extremely ambitious proposed schedule, given the nature of what's at stake in this case. With 31 of the 37 counts involving classified documents and the need for defense attorneys to receive clearances to read the documents that will be at issue, trying to get a trial started by August 14 would be no small feat. Consequently, it surprised no one when Special Counsel Jack Smith on Friday filed multiple requests with Judge Cannon, including a motion to move the trial date to December 11. I would not be at all surprised if this trial doesn't even begin until after the November 2024 election. Now to the latest on the Biden crime family saga. Two weeks ago, on Monday, June 12, Iowa Republican Senator Charles Grassley went to the floor of the Senate to make a statement, and it was a doozy. Grassley revealed that according to the confidential human source who had claimed that he had been told that a senior executive of a Ukrainian energy company had bribed both Joe and Hunter Biden for $5 million apiece, that senior executive claimed to have audio recordings of conversations with both Bidens specifically 15 audio recordings of conversations with Hunter and another two recordings of conversations he had with Joe. He had recorded the conversations as what Grassley described as sort of an insurance policy. No one knows what that means. We don't know if the recordings ever really existed, and we don't know if they exist today. We don't know if the executive who claims to have made the recordings has kept them. We don't know if anyone in the U.S. government has ever verified their existence or listened to them. To make matters more interesting, Grassley revealed the claim about the audio recordings was contained in the FBI FD-1023 form that memorialized the tip from the confidential human source about the two $5 million bribes, but which, Grassley revealed, had been redacted from the version of the document that had finally, under pressure, been shared by the FBI with the House Oversight Committee. That is, when FBI Director Chris Wray finally agreed to share the document with the House Committee, he redacted a rather significant portion of that document. 
Not surprisingly, the claim that there are audio recordings rocketed across Washington and stirred demand among allies of former President Trump for answers on the seemingly never-ending Hunter Biden investigation. Those demands for action were answered to an extent eight days later, when the United States Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, informed the court that Hunter Biden had agreed to plead guilty to two charges of willful failure to pay taxes and to enter a diversion program for a gun-related charge. The two tax charges are misdemeanors. The diversion program for the gun-related charge means that he will likely avoid a prison sentence. Critics immediately cried foul, claiming that Hunter got a sweetheart deal, preferential treatment that came his way only because he's a Biden. The critics' argument was bolstered Thursday when House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Jason Smith, whose committee had taken testimony late last month from two IRS whistleblowers regarding the Hunter Biden investigation, released the hundreds of pages of their testimony. The two IRS whistleblowers, including senior supervisory agent Gary Shapley, who had outed himself publicly earlier, and a second member of the investigative team who wishes to maintain his anonymity, claimed that Hunter had received preferential treatment and that both the IRS and the DOJ had taken extraordinary steps to shield him from more serious prosecution. They offered specific charges, including claims that Hunter had illegally claimed as business deductions monies he had paid to prostitutes, including airfare travel expenses to bring them to him, and that senior DOJ officials had rejected the possibility of obtaining a warrant to search Joe Biden's guest house, where Hunter had been living, because the, quote, optics, unquote, would be bad. Moreover, senior DOJ officials tipped off Hunter's lawyers about the possibility of an upcoming search of a storage unit, so that by the time IRS agents could search the premises, Hunter would have been able to move the records in question. The whistleblowers claim that the IRS Criminal Investigations Division personnel assigned to the case agreed that Hunter should be charged with felony tax evasion charges for three years' worth of filings and should also be charged for several years' worth of filing false returns. Further, we've now seen a WhatsApp message from Hunter to a Chinese business partner in which Hunter says he's sitting there with his father and they both want to know why a commitment made has not been met. In the message, Hunter threatens the business associate. It reads like something out of The Sopranos. In addition, and more importantly, the whistleblowers claim that U.S. Attorney Weiss told them that he had tried to file felony charges against Hunter in California, but had been turned down by the U.S. attorney there, and had then asked to be made a special counsel, but had been rejected by his DOJ superiors. Weiss, according to the whistleblowers, had told them he had then tried to bring felony charges in the District of Columbia, but had again been rejected. If these claims are true, they contradict the sworn congressional testimony of Attorney General Merrick Garland, who testified that Weiss had been told he could have anything he wanted. Hunter Biden's next stop will be in court, where he's expected on July 26th. And that's our Washington Report for this week.